0: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, My name is Tim Lynch. I'm the director of Cato's uh, Project on Criminal Justice. I'm glad you could all be with us this afternoon. Today we are going to be hosting a debate on the question of whether or not the American criminal justice system needs an overhaul. And we have two very distinguished judges from our federal appellate courts that are here to share their point of view with us. And what's kind of interesting is that Both of our guests were appointed to the bench by President Reagan, so this is not going to be your typical left-right debate uh, here in Washington. Um, It seems to me that judges are in a unique position to contribute uh, to the improvement of our law and the improvement of the administration of justice by writing articles, by giving lectures, and by debating ideas that have an impact on our legal system. So I want to thank both of our guests for taking time out of their busy schedules to give us the benefit of some of their experiences uh, from the bench and suggesting ideas that might improve our legal system. Before I introduce our speakers, I want to take just a minute or two to lay something of a foundation for the discussion that's going to follow. But before I do that, let me ask those of you who came with cell phones, if you just take a moment now to quickly double check and make sure that they are silenced uh, as a courtesy to our speakers. Thank you. I should note at the outset that we could hold a three-day conference uh, and still not adequately cover all of the important issues that pertain to the American criminal justice system. But I would like to take... uh, to put a few questions on the table. And if our debaters want to address these questions, fine. If they do not want to address them, if they want to use their allotted time to focus our attention on other issues that they think are important, that's fine too. Maybe we can get to the questions uh, when we uh, open up the floor and uh, take your questions and comments after the debate. But here are four questions to consider. First, do we have a problem with over-criminalization? That is, do we have too many criminal statutes criminalizing too much activity? Second, is our sentencing system too severe? That is, are we incarcerating people longer than is just or necessary? This is something that the Congress is presently debating, both in the House and the Senate. Third question, do we have a problem with police and prosecutorial abuse? We do hear from time to time about innocent people Uh, getting released from prison because of DNA testing? Are these always mistakes that are inevitable in any criminal system, or are they indications of deeper problems concerning misconduct by government officials? Fourth, what about the level of crime in our society? Uh, Over the weekend, the Washington Post reported that Baltimore has just recorded its 300th homicide uh, of the year. Several cities seem to be experiencing a crime spike. What, if anything, can be done to minimize this violence so that we'll have fewer crime victims? Going first today is going to be Judge Alex Kaczynski, who has been serving on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for 30 years. As a matter of fact, according to his bio, it was just last week that he marked his 30th year on the Ninth Circuit, so congratulations for that milestone. Judge Kaczynski is known for many things, uh, his magic tricks, his uh, strong Romanian accent, uh, his good humor, but mostly for his well-reasoned and sharply worded opinions and and articles. Over the summer, Judge Kaczynski wrote a scathing critique of the criminal justice system for the Georgetown Law Journal in an article titled Criminal Law 2.0. And his arguments have caused quite a stir in legal circles. I can attest to this because over the past 10 or 12 weeks when I've been talking with either uh, a public defender or a prosecutor, I start telling them about this interesting article that they should check out by Judge Kaczynski, and they stop me and say, Oh, we're aware of that article. So it is definitely uh, has been making the rounds. In fact, uh, George Will wrote a column on it uh, just last month. Uh, so would you please give a warm welcome to Judge Alex Kaczynski? Going second today will be Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson. Judge Wilkinson has been serving on the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit for more than 30 years. He has also been very much engaged in debating our legal system, uh, especially some of the big cases that have been handed down by the Supreme Court over the years. Judge Wilkinson has been widely published in all of the major newspapers and has also written several books on the law. We just had a book for him, a book forum for him here at Cato uh, a few months ago. But his most relevant work to our event today is an article that he published last year in the Vanderbilt uh, Law Review, titled In Defense of the American Criminal Justice System, where he responds to various critics and makes the point that our system has virtues that are not always acknowledged uh, as much as they should be. He's spoken here several times and we're glad to have him back. Would you please welcome Judge Wilkinson. Okay, our format today is going to be very simple. Uh, Each judge is going to give an initial presentation of about 15 to 20 minutes. After that, we're going to have a very brief second round where each speaker will be given about five minutes to respond to what the other person has said. After that, we're going to open it up and take your questions and comments. And then we will adjourn for a reception upstairs. Judge Kaczynski, the floor is yours. Does our criminal justice system
1: need an overhaul? Thank you, Tim. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I've been observing this process now for 30 more years, at the same time as Jay, uh, and um, um, the conclusion I've come to is there's a troubling signs on the horizon. We have had, uh, we've been doing the same thing, we've been doing criminal trials now for quite a long time. Uh, for basically hundreds of years, but uh, certainly the way we do them now for a couple of hundred years. And we make certain assumptions about the way the system operates, and it turns out many of those assumptions are just based on guesswork, on what we think is experience, um, and uh, what uh, uh, much of what we see uh, has been undermined recently by... by um, by science and by common sense, and um, there's troubling signs on the horizon. Let me start by pointing out uh, a fact that I I don't think a lot of people um, focus on, and that is that the United States is an outlier, is an outlier in the number of people it has in prison. If you look at the numbers uh, above, the United States with 319 million people has um, over 2.2 million people behind bars. Uh, That's a rate, which is the number on the right-hand column, of uh, 698, almost 700 per 100,000 population. Uh, Compare that to other countries, like China, which is the next country that has um, um, uh, a large prison population. They have uh, about four times the number of people we do, but they have uh, much fewer people in prison. Uh, So their rate is something like 119 um, uh, per 100,000. Uh, The only one that's anywhere close to ours is Russia. Uh, But then you get uh, India, Brazil, Mexico, United Kingdom, Canada. Um, Take a look at uh, cut this particular way. Uh, China has ninety percent of the global population, 16% of the prison population. India with 17% of the population of the world has 4%. United States with 5% of the population has just about a quarter of the world's prison population. That means that here in the home of the brave, in the land of the free, resides one out of every every four prisoners uh, in the world. One out of every four prisoners. Now, we must ask ourselves, is our country that much more lawless than other neighboring countries? Are we more lawless than Canada um, uh, or Mexico? Uh, are we, um, do we get better policing? Are we safer than, let's say, Canada uh, or United Kingdom? Um, in some places uh, in the United States, um, take a look at the bottom figure there is Louisiana. That is the, the um, state of Louisiana with 5 million people has far more prisoners than Canada with 36 million people. Uh, the rate there is 1,000 per 100,000 people, which means it's over 1,000 per 100,000 people, is that more than one out of every 100 Louisianans is in prison. Um, I find that surprising and and somewhat shocking. Now, in trying to figure out why this is the case, you can look and one of the reasons is we impose much harsher sentences, much longer sentences for the same crime of a lot of other countries. And the question is, uh, is it justified? Is it justified in terms of the, the cost uh, to the human beings and to, the, to their families, uh, to the fact that um, the longer people stay in prison, the less likely they are to be integrated back into society, and frankly, just to the cost uh, to ourselves in terms of running these prisons. It's uh, $8 billion for running the federal prisons, $80 billion a year uh, for running the state prisons. So um, this is just a warning sign. It's not. It doesn't. Uh, it, but just put things in perspective uh, that there may be something wrong. Um, we have um, um, uh, now quite a bit of scientific research that casts doubt on various aspects of the trial process. Things that we always took for granted: the uh, perception and memory of witnesses. Uh, and a variety of other uh, processes that we use during the trials. Let me, I don't have time for everything, but let me just focus on, on um, scientific evidence. We have, um, and we take for granted that somebody in a lab court comes and uh, gives a report and says this is the case, uh, that, that, that is the truth, that is the reality. But much of what the science that goes on in the courtroom is not tested by Daubert standards. Uh, that Daubert is the case that the Supreme Court has told us, uh, should be employed when uh, admitting, um, uh, uh, deciding whether to admit scientific evidence in civil uh, in, um, in cases. Uh, much of what we accept in criminal cases doesn't get put to that test. We just sort of assume it's, uh, it's valid. In fact, when various kinds of uh, scientific evidence is put to the test, when there actually is a Known sample and an unknown sample, and they test how, quick, how often the, uh, the experts get it right. There are tremendous uh, error rates. Uh, you can see the numbers up above. Uh, um, spectrographic voice identification, worse than useless. Handwriting, 40%. Bite marks, uh, worse than useless. Even fingerprint, which has been thought to be the gold standard for decades. They said, well, you know, they get the fingerprint, well, then they got you dead to rights. Well, it turns out even fingerprints, even roll prints, when they, when they actually sort of test, um, uh, not, not latent prints that are left at the scene, but ones that when they actually roll them and to make sure they're perfect, both samples are perfect, uh, there's a significant and non-trivial uh, error rate uh, that's shown, uh, that, that shows up. The, the, the uh, poster child case of this is when the FBI a few years back announced a 100% match to fingerprints found in a bag linked to the 2004 Madrid bombings. And they said the guy whose fingerprint it was was um, uh, Brandon Mayfield, an Oregon attorney. Well, it turns out that two weeks later, the Spanish investigators identified a different person with 100% match of fingerprints. And the FBI had to go back and, and uh, apologize to Mayfield uh, for having uh, branded him an international criminal. Some of the stuff, some of the stuff. Well, at least Mayfield got an apology. Not everybody gets an apology. Um, the, some of the stuff that gets admitted in our criminal trials, because again, it doesn't have to pass Daubert standard. There's no validation necessary. Somebody gets up and says, "I'm an expert in how fire spread." Well, uh, Cameron Todd Willingham was charged with uh, setting fire to his. Uh, this is down in Texas. Uh, setting fire uh, to his. Um, uh, house and um, his three children were killed and they had a uh, expert, a so-called expert, come uh, and testify that the fire had to have had a, an accelerant, which I mean uh, gasoline or, or uh, kerosene, otherwise it would have burned in a different way. Well, it turns out it's nonsense. It turns out that that technique which was then widely used uh, by people who are not experts. Uh, by people who were firefighters and they drew certain conclusions based on their experience, not on scientific research, Uh, but uh, there were many cases where testimony like this were given. Uh, In Mayfield's case, um, uh, he lost the race um, to try to debunk the evidence. He was executed in in 2004, almost certainly uh, wrongfully executed. Um, uh, Studies done afterwards have Unanimously said that the testimony in his case, the stuff that actually hung him, was just complete um, uh, voodoo science. Uh, Now that is the deals with the area of uh, simply uh, mistaken or 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 um, uh, confused uh, forensic scientists. One of the big problems is that many forensic officers, uh, many officers that do. Uh, forensic work for the police, views themselves as part of the prosecution team. They're not out there to determine in their minds to determine a uh, a just result or the correct result. They are there to help build the prosecution's case. And that's just a very bad structure having uh, having uh, forensic officers, uh, supposedly who are, uh, who are, who are uh, objective, really being part of the prosecution team. And there are lots of examples. I've only listed a few of them on the slide of cases where uh, people in those offices have either falsified reports, have simply been careless. Uh, or uh, just not bother to do the work and come up with a report pointing the finger at somebody. Uh, Melenkov from uh, Montana, and eventually from uh, at least three people, uh, sent to prison based on 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 what he, he turned out to have done that was not uh, scientifically sound. Uh, and Dukan used to just sort of look at two things and say, yeah, those are the same things without testing them. And that implicated um, uh, uh, 34,000, I think it's, the number has gone up to close to 40,000 people uh, whose criminal convictions have been implicated because Ann, uh, Annie Dukin um, said, yes, uh, th- those are two were the same substances. And you say, well, what about DNA? At least we're safe with DNA. My word, if we get a DNA match, at least we know that that is safe. Well, it's only as safe as the people who handle the DNA, as safe as they are honest, competent and willing to uh, be objective. Uh, there are lots of examples of this. I just happened to list the latest, where the San Francisco Police Department is facing accusations that the DNA crime-like technicians were filling the gaps for poor quality, incomplete genetic evidence, and passing them off as definitive test results in states' offender tracking database. Now, right now, this is just an accusation, although there seems to be quite a bit of substance to it. But there are lots of instances, including uh, involving the FBI, where the DNA, they simply muffed the DNA analysis because nobody uh, either didn't pay attention or um, <coughs> rounded the results in a way as to favor the, favor the prosecution. There is a Inspector General report uh, involving the FBI where they looked at hair sample matches. Once thought to be, uh, you know, they said, oh, well, the hair came from somebody's head, that must be it. Well, it turns out that they now admit, the FBI, supposed to stand the standard for the entire country um, uh, that um, in 95% of the 268 trials that they have reviewed so far, um, they overstated the match. They either lied or overstated the match. Uh, uh, including 32 in death penalty cases. And they are not done looking at, but in 95% of the cases, they uh, took the side of the prosecution rather than coming up with an objective um, uh, an objective standard. They specifically focused on an examiner by the name of Michael Malone, uh, whose conduct was th- th- uh, said to be particularly problematic and um, uh, they admit that but for Malone's testimony, one defendant would not have been death eligible, would not have been convicted of a death eligible offense, and three other prisoners who depended on uh, Malone's conviction have already been exonerated and they served, each spent more than 20 years in prison. Um, now that is dealing with, uh, with um, uh, the evidence. Now, let me you, spend a few words uh, talking about prosecutors. I had this court in one of my opinions, and it caused quite an uproar, said there is an epidemic of Brady violations in the land. I think most people here are lawyers and understand what Brady is, but for, for those who might not be lawyers and might not know Brady, Brady is the Supreme Court's, uh, a Supreme Court opinion that says pretty simply, if the prosecution has evidence that helps the defendant, they're supposed to turn it over. They're required to turn it over. And the, the, um, um, in case after case that I saw, I saw that this was not being done. Uh, and um, it is, um, it must have hit a chord because uh, the phrase I used in this little opinion, um, um, way out in the West Coast, other side of the horizon, uh, was quoted in, in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, Forbes, many other places. It must have struck a chord. Uh, and it, it's with good reason. Now I should say, and I'm gonna repeat this again at the end, I am not accusing all prosecutors. I've known, I know many prosecutors who are terrifically uh, scrupulous uh, uh, civil servants. They, they, they uh, uh, do their job honestly and fairly. They try to get a conviction only where there is proof, uh, overwhelming proof of guilt, uh, and they live up by ethical standards. But it doesn't take very many who due to ambition or sloppiness or some other, uh, or just being misguided, um, wind up um, breaking the rules to create a real problem. Not only for those defendants, but it also creates a problem for the office because if one guy's getting ahead because he lies, it sort of makes it harder for everybody everybody else to be honest. So this is directed at the few bad apples. But remember what happens with a few bad apples if they are left to stay there. Um, the uh, examples of Brady, so anyway, I was challenged both by my colleagues internally and externally, so how do you know there are, is there an epidemic of Brady violations? And the answer is I don't know, I can't be sure because by their nature, most Brady violations don't get found out. If the prosecution has a sculpatory evidence and they don't reveal it to the defense, in most cases, it never comes out. But we have enough cases where it comes out, where it ought to cause us to worry. Uh, There is the case of Senator Ted Stevens that was tried right here in Washington, DC, and you know what happened there. The prosecution failed to provide uh, provide, um, exculpatory evidence, uh, and uh, he got convicted. He got convicted a week before the election, lost the election, The longest uh, uh, serving member of the Senate lost the election because the conviction came in a week before the election. Uh, Eventually, uh, a uh, FBI agent blew the whistle and the evidence of culpatory evidence was discovered and um, the conviction was set aside. It's uh, the the whole episode episode is uh, detailed in um, Sidney Powell's License to Lie. Excellent book with a superb forward (laughs) if you read nothing else, buy the book if you read nothing else, the foreword will mesmerize you, I I, I guarantee it, Uh, but uh, she talks about, uh, Sydney. talks about uh, the the Stevens case uh, and also about um, uh, some other cases including including, uh, one of the Enron prosecution uh, U.S. versus Brown and and Arthur Anderson prosecution in various aspects in which there is overreaching again, I don't want to uh, brush with a very broad brush, uh, too broad a brush, because there are many, many, many uh, honest and fair uh, prosecutors in state and federal uh, law, uh, in state and federal court, but there are enough to worry about. Uh, there is uh, another one uh, high-profile case, the Duke Lacrosse case. Uh, where uh, the uh, district attorney, you'll remember the Dukla Cross case, uh, DNA tests were taken. This was a case of uh, accused of rape. They found DNA of four people, none of whom were a lacrosse player. Uh, The district attorney hid the evidence, leaving the defendants hanging there to be be vilified and to to be uh, be, uh, stand accused and having their lives wrecked. The the, DA did some other terrible things. Eventually, uh, Nifan got got disbarred. Um, There's a Michael Morton case, which ought to give chills to everybody. Michael Morton was convicted and served 25 years for killing his wife. This is down in Texas. And the reason this happened, or one of the reasons this happened, is that the Ken Anderson, the prosecutor, hid evidence. It was evidence of another man lurking out there that came from the victim's son. The prosecution hid the evidence. Now, this was before DNA came along, and when DNA came along, um, uh, Morton said, look, I would like to have some of the evidence tested because there were blood spatters and uh, semen, uh, there was some sort of DNA evidence and uh, that could be tested, and said, I would like to be tested out because I know I'm innocent, I will be cleared. Well, Ken Anderson, who by that time was a state judge, importuned the then current DA to not allow the testing to go forward. He did not want to have Michael Morton exonerated because he knew it would reflect badly on him and his perfidy would be revealed. It took six years for the courts of Texas to finally get the evidence that exonerated uh, Michael Morton. And what happened at that point is it discovered that the DNA actually pointed to another man by the name of Norwood. Norwood was tried and convicted. The tragedy is, that while Michael Morton is in prison, convicted of killing, falsely convicted of killing his wife, another murder happens in the neighborhood. And now Norwood has been charged with that crime. Case is pending. I don't want to say anything more about it because it's a pending prosecution. Let me just say there's now very strong suspicion that Norwood committed this other murder. And if the police and the prosecutor had not hidden the evidence and had not focused on Michael Morton to the exclusion of anybody else, it is entirely possible that woman would still be alive today. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the Scooter Libby Libby case that happened right here. And it's another way in which prosecutors can overreach. Uh, uh, Scooter Libby got convicted based on information of a, uh, uh, a, a phone call that happened uh, four years earlier. And there were disputes. The woman on the other end of the phone line uh, was Judith Miller. She talked to the prosecutor, uh, and, um, and Patrick Fitzgerald, and somehow he persuaded her that, that Scooter Libby has... Was the one who gave her the information about uh, about uh, Valerie uh, playing being with the CIA. Now, how do we know he did this? Because just this year, uh, just this year, um, Judith Miller f- published a memoir in which she goes back and rethinks the event, and she raises a horrifying possibility, horrifying to herself. Read the book, uh, where she says, "Was I manipulated?" Was this really facts I remembered, or did the prosecutor put them in my mind? Chilling stuff, folks, because that was the only evidence. Um, ah, I'm going to have to go uh, very quickly for, the, for my time is running out. Uh, overcriminalization, uh, Tim has talked about that. I, I will sort of skip over that. There are too many crimes that are... Cases are brought on very thin evidence or things that turn out not to be crimes at all. It happens uh, all the time. I want to talk particularly about uh, the case of, United States of Steinberg. Uh, Steinberg um, was one of the um, Newman and Cheerson defendants. And if you read the Newman and Cheerson opinion, and that was a case of the Second Circuit said, you needed to give an instruction on Sienta. Well, it turns out that Newman and Cheerson were convicted <laughs> And at that point they brought a prosecution, uh, they brought an indictment against uh, Steinberg who was another uh, defendant in that case. Now they could have brought the prosecution by filing it as a separate case. Instead, and this is a quote from the Second Circuit um, opinion, the Second Circuit notes that instead of doing that they filed a superseding indictment in the Newman and case as the Second Circuit said, after the case had been tried and when there was no longer any possibility of trying the cases together. Normally you file a superseding indictment so you can bring all the cases together for a trial. The reason they did it is because other judges in the Southern District would uh, would, uh, give the disputed instruction. Uh, the one that the, the, the Second Circuit eventually said was required, but Judge Sullivan did not. So they found themselves a judge they liked, they found a judge that they, that they, that they thought would, uh, uh, would give the law but turns out incorrectly. So instead of uh, uh, filing the case uh, in, this, uh, in the, in the uh, normal course, they filed a superseding indictment to bring it before that judge. Now that kind of manipulation is just sort of sleazy, just sort of low. And I'm surprised that the judges of the Southern District have not brought discipline against lawyers who do this.
0: So, Federal Bureau uh, of Investigation Agents arrested a long- Federal wanna, Bureau of what, Investigation what Agents arrested a long-time SAC Capital
2: Portfolio Manager on tra- insider trading charges. Right now, you're looking at
0: raw footage that The Wall Street Journal's Jenny Strasberg shot this morning. She was there uh, at the perp walk when, when Mr. Steinberg was arrested. He was quickly put into a car, and he was had his hands cuffed. And, uh, you know, it all was pretty quick, as far as I could see. They were in the building before that, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um,
1: So Michael Steinberg knew they were coming for him, and through his lawyers, offered to surrender, offered to go someplace and terms of health in. The prosecutors refused. Instead, they come out at 5 in the morning, and they haul him from his where he's living, and how does there happen to be cameras and reporters on the scene to film this? Was it because Michael Steinberg called and say, hey, I'm going to be arrested, come and see me? No, the prosecutors did it because they relish the perp walk. And why do they relish the perp walk? Because it infects the jury pool, because it punishes people who have yet to be found guilty of anything, and because it gives them leverage, because people are intimidated, and they're more likely to, to, um, to, um, um, to um, um, uh, more likely to uh, plead guilty.
2: Federal Bureau uh, of so, Investigation. Um,
1: other, they use other charges. They read the Fifth Circuit opinion, United States which is Bowen, where you've got federal prosecutors blogging about their cases and making the defendants out to be dirt. Uh, Look at um, the Duke Lacrosse case where the prosecutor is holding forth, uh, holding press conferences before he's even uh, interviewed the, uh, interviewed the, the, uh, the defendant, uh, I'm sorry, the victim rather. And what is the point of all of this? Well, this is the um, lawyer who is um, now in private practice who was the prosecutor in the Steinberg case. And if you go online, even this morning, this is from this morning, you can see that she still proudly lists uh, having convicted Michael Steinberg on her resume. No doubt this was not considered when uh, her law firm uh, hired her. Uh, It seems to me that she needs to do a uh, erratum there to show that uh, convicted Michael Steinberg of something that is not a crime. Um, Glenn Ford served 30 years in prison 30 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. We know for sure he did not commit. And he did it because his prosecutor and the police did not look deep enough, did not search for evidence and withheld exculpatory evidence. And here is that prosecutor now after Ford was released. Marty Stroud says, "Quote, in 1984 I was 33 years old." I was arrogant, judgmental. I was not as interested in justice as I was in winning. He says the physical evidence was, quote, "pure junk science at its evil worst." And quote, "I apologize to Glenn Ford for the all the misery I have caused him and his family." And in an extraordinary interview with a local paper. Stroud said the entire criminal justice system was broken. People are out to win it, whatever the cost. They don't really care about the victim. They don't care about this or that. They care about their record. And back when I was in my early 30s, I was Mm -hmm. caught up in that insanity. That the end justified the means
3: and that we didn't try people who were innocent.
1: I submit to you that the answer to the question presented is yes, thank you.
4: I want to say what a pleasure it is um, to be here and uh, to be with my friends at Cato once again. Um, Tim, thank you for everything you've done to arrange this discussion. And um, I don't, uh, many times I agree with what Cato says, and sometimes I don't, but I'm invariably appreciative of the wonderful contribution that this institute makes to the national policy dialogue. Um, I want to thank. Um, my friend, uh, Judge Kaczynski, for his presentation and for his stimulating article, which I read with the greatest interest. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to have a jurist of his legal acumen and distinction on the federal bench. And I think he, um, his uh, commentary and questions um, are helpful to us all. I. Uh, came to the position of speaking and writing in defense of the um, American criminal justice system because it occurred to me I might be the only one who was going to do so. And uh, I read with greatest interest academic studies um, and discussions from this quarter and that quarter. and. Um, there was a relentless assault on the criminal justice system and um, and nobody had anything much good to say about it. Um, Alex's uh, presentation was on the criminal justice system was very interesting, but I didn't notice that it was overflowing with compliments. Um, So I thought uh, someone has got to speak and write on behalf of this system But don't get me wrong, I don't think for a minute, and I would never try to persuade you that this is a perfect system without its flaws. It's run by human beings, and a a system that is human and and dependent on human judgment is going to produce, unfortunately, some examples of of behavior that no decent person would ever condone. Um, It's not perfect, but The question I kept coming back to um, is, what do we replace it with? What would you do instead? Um, And that's where I think some of the critics fall short, um, is what is the alternative? Um, I'm always a little bit overpowered by PowerPoint presentations. Um, I don't bring them um, to talks myself. we, I can throw statistics around at you. Uh, just in the past couple of weeks, we've heard some very sad and sobering news about the number of homicides in Baltimore for this year, reaching 300, which is a great many more than that fine city has enjoyed for, or has had been inflicted with for, for many Many years. Uh, There's a recent article in the Washington Post indicating that for 2014, the um, uh, violent crime uh, in Adams Morgan had increased 32% over the uh, previous year. On Capitol Hill, it had increased uh, 26%. But these these are sobering statistics. But I don't mean to make my case on them. I would simply say that when um, people say that we suffer, that we're an outlier and suffer from rates of um, over-incarceration, advance the modest proposition that some of these individuals thoroughly deserve to be incarcerated. so many criticisms have been leveled in the last year by really esteemed um academics that i'm hard pressed to answer them all uh, one of the um most frequent is that the system is overly dependent on human memory, and um that may be so, but again how are we going to get around that how do we uh, uh how, how How could it be otherwise? Um, We can't simply impanel a jury outside the yellow tape on a crime scene. Uh, It takes time to appoint counsel. It takes time to interview witnesses. And so inevitably, in the time that it takes to do a thorough and decent job at trial, it's going to be done after the criminal event itself. And we inescapably and unavoidably are going to rely upon human memory as imperfect as it may be. Um, My friend Judge Kaczynski says, well, the prosecution enjoys an unfair advantage because it gets to present its case first. Uh, And that's the case that sticks in the jury's mind. Uh, I'm not at all sure that's correct uh, because sometimes uh, the, the word you hear last is the word that's most influential with you. But how else, again, could we do it? Um, You can't have the defendant defending himself in a trial before he's ever been accused of anything. Having the defendant go first um, is so inconsistent with the presumption of innocence that we would never accord it, that we would never accept it. And so I think this is just another example of an unfair knock upon the system. Um, My opponent also says the system is so unfair because the police um, have uh, the ability to widely investigate a crime, and of course, in the course of their investigation, they uh, acquire a familiarity with evidence that the uh, defendant doesn't have, but it's right because the party bringing suit almost always or frequently enjoys an investigative um, advantage. And so they do investigate because they're charged with initiating. That's not an unfair advantage or something that we can get around. Um, Believe it or not, I feel more comfortable that they are investigating. I would not want them to cut corners and not investigate. I would not want the police and prosecution to go forward with a half-baked case. So sometimes the investigation here that's decried as an unfair advantage um, actually turns up exculpatory evidence. And officers who may have first thought that somebody did it think, no, further investigation has proved that not to be the case at all. and Judge Kaczynski, uh envisions a different role for our criminal juries, um, perhaps than they've received than they have played so far. He suggests that they go into the jury room with written instructions to accompany them. This is an argument that I think has two sides. Um, one, on the one hand, you might the uh, written instructions can serve. Um, is a good reference point. Um, on the other hand, we don't want jurors acting like a bunch of amateur lawyers and poring over written instructions rather than asking themselves the basic commonsensical question, is so-and-so guilty of a crime? But this that question has two sides. What I don't think has two sides is, um, as Alex's suggestion that the jurors, members of the jury, discuss a case among themselves um, while it's going on. Um, I think that's dangerous. Simply on a practical matter, it lengthens a trial. It's going to lengthen a trial a great deal. And we have to remember that when we ask jurors to serve, we are asking them to cut out time from their day and to give of their time and things that, that, that lengthen and elongate that service are a further imposition upon them. But even more fundamentally, do you really want jurors talking with each other about their impressions before all the evidence is in? I think it's much better that, that, that <coughs> jurors, in order to be fair-minded, wait until each side has a full chance to present its evidence. Alex suggests, well, we ought to bring juries into sentencing. Let's have jurors sentence. Um, Again, I disagree. Uh, Sentencing is fundamentally different from trial because the presumption of innocence um, has faded away. And if you have jurors sentencing, um, I don't think that they possess the... uh, day-by-day day familiarity with a wide variety of cases that a sentencing judge has. And, it, and having jurors as sentencing is going to make it more and more like the trial itself. And um, in that situation, we're going to have more evidentiary objections, more assignments of error, more assignments of error on appeal. What is happening, in cumulatively, is we are trying to move closer and closer to a trial model on everything. We're saying grand juries are handmaidens of prosecutions. We ought to have grand juries become a more adversary um, proceeding. Let's not have the secrecy. Let's have juries get into the Sentencing Act on collateral attack. Let's have evidentiary hearings um, that uh, rehash, in many instances, trial evidence. And if we keep going this in this direction and make of all these different proceedings, grand juries, collateral attacks, sentencing, uh, events that more and more resemble the main event of a trial, we're going to have this system of ours collapsing of its own weight. Um, uh, there have been uh, so many accusations <laughs> at the criminal justice system, you know how sometimes when somebody disagrees with you, they, they, they throw so many arguments uh, at you. And you really say, gosh, I don't know where to begin. Um, some of these things that are under fire these days are actually uh, um, defendant-friendly um, practices, in my view. and we're, <laughs> pursuing a counterproductive path um, in, uh, in trying to, uh, to do away with them. Um, take the question of uh, peremptory challenges. I think most of you are familiar with those, that it gives a, a criminal defendant and a prosecution a right to strike jury, uh, jurors from the jury for, for practically any reason they want. And the case was made by Justice Thurgood Marshall a long time back that um, peremptory challenges ought to be done away with, that they ought to be abolished. And that particular position has been taken up, I don't think by my friend here, but by um, other critics. Let's just do away with peremptory challenges to jurors altogether because there's too much of a chance that they're going to be uh, uh, used um, racially in order to disqualify African American jurors, and um, that has that has some validity to it. There's a case before the Supreme Court where the race of the juror was actually marked down by the prosecution, used as a basis for peremptory challenges. And uh, you now that seems the case is not before my court, but it seems to me that that kind of practice goes. Way behind what we should be, uh, be prepared to accept, but do we really want to abolish peremptory challenges um, altogether? In most jurisdictions, the defendant gets more of these peremptory challenges than the prosecution does, um, and the defendant's exercise of the challenges, uh, uh, exercise of those challenges, is rarely challenged, um, but. Peremptory challenges fill in an important gap in the criminal justice system because challenges for cause are never likely to eliminate all biased jurors from the system. A challenge for cause is when you have somebody and you say, well, he's a prosecutor's uh, first cousin. We can't have him or her um, sitting on the jury, as indeed we can. But, prosec- but challenges for cause are simply the tip of the iceberg you have to have peremptory challenges to, to fill them out. And a defendant certainly should be able to say, I can't really put my finger on it, but I think this juror has it out for me, has it in for me. I don't want this person sitting on my jury. And a defendant should be able, no questions asked, to strike that individual. And so I, I part company. And again, I'm not sure Alex has made this point. I don't think he has. but I part company with a large number of critics who say that because they can be misused, as they can, that we shouldn't really use them at all.
0: Um,
4: I want to deal uh, with so much of what Alex had to uh, to say dealt with prosecutorial abuse. Um, And there are undoubtedly instances about uh, where, where prosecutors have behaved in a shameful way. And um, Alex has, has highlighted some of those. Um, the Ted Stevens trial was outrageous. Uh, my friend is, is correct on that in, in every way. But Alex, tell us you really didn't mean it when you said that you were going to abrogate, abolish, absolute immunity. For prosecution for prosecutors does, does your does, does your position really take you that far? Uh, your article seems to suggest that we should do away with absolute um, immunity for, for prosecutions and I, I disagree on that. Um, I think it 's very damaging to have a civil damages um, action brought against a prosecutor every time there is an acquittal. Um, Sometimes when you, and and that's what would happen if we abrogated this community, this immunity. And sometimes you can create, when you create a cause of action for civil damages, you run the risk. Of um having five insubstantial suits for everyone that might conceivably have merit. And you say, well, if we did away with the absolute immunity for prosecutors, what will we what would we replace this for? What would we replace it with? And the answer I get most often, well, you can do, you don't have to have full absolute immunity. You can have qualified immunity. But qualified immunity really does turn out to be no immunity at all, um, because qualified immunity runs up against the summary judgment standard. And a summary judgment standard says that all inferences have to be given um, to the non-prevailing party, which would, would, would never be a prosecutor in the event the prosecutor moved for summary judgment. And so the summary judgment standard would draw these cases into trial. Um, and, it, um, it, it, and the Supreme Court has said many times that an immunity is essentially lost if someone has to go through a trial to, um, to prevail on it. Uh, you can tie up prosecutorial resources in this way to an extent that more and more we're going to have prosecutors doing everything but prosecuting. And the uh, defendants, I mean, the um, Supreme Court has been absolutely firm on this question uh, that we not over-deter prosecutors from bringing prosecutions that do need to be brought. Sometimes prosecutors decline, for various reasons, to prosecute cases that should be brought. Um, sometimes it's easier to simply pick the low hanging fruit. Some cases are easier and less risky to, pick to, to, uh, to work up than others. And so you, you run the risk of going from one end of the pendulum to another, which I think would be the case if we did uh, what my esteemed colleague is suggesting. Uh, there's an attack on plea bargaining um, leveled by some very um, sophisticated and thoughtful people. Um, And the idea is that it's nothing but an assembly line. And because of the huge volume, people are just run through without any um, sensitivity to their rights. And we have uh, uh, guilty people um, actually um, pleading guilty because of the risk that they might... Um, face a more serious punishment at trial. Um, This picture of plea bargaining, which is at the heart of so much of the attack on the criminal justice system, needs to be qualified. Um, Certainly, uh, public defenders are correct when they say that that they're in need of more resources and that they um, have too many cases on their docket, but You can't deny somebody the right to cop what may be a very advantageous plea, because nowhere in the criminal justice process, nowhere does a defendant have more leverage than at the plea stage. The Prosecutor doesn't want to go to trial. He doesn't want to expend those resources. He's willing to plead. And Rule 11 in the plea bargaining process provides a criminal defendant with all kinds of options, having charges dismissed, having charges not be brought, having a judge accept the recommended sentence if the judge agrees to the plea bargain. Um, after trial, uh, those options are generally off the table. The defendant just doesn't have the leverage anymore. Um, and. Uh, the prosecutor's already spent those resources in trial, and he said, well, you, know, you have nothing to offer me now. I've already done this, I've already gone to trial, and maybe they shouldn't be thinking that way. But that's the way it plays out sometimes, and a defendant, by going to trial, risks forfeiting a three-level uh, reduction for acceptance mm-hmm. of responsibility, or if he's patently lying, he's going to get a two-level increase for obstruction um, of justice. I don't want to be misunderstood, because trial is a crucial right. And people have every right in our country um, to, uh, to exercise it. And it would be wrong, incredibly wrong, to pressure people to do away with it. But here's the thing. I talk to criminal defense attorneys, and they say, you know, I do have some regrets in my career. And some of those regrets center around plea bargaining. I should have encouraged my client to take a plea. Instead, he went to trial and got clobbered. And they say, you know, trial is fun for me. It's fun for me as a criminal defense attorney but I'm not the one doing the time. It's my client that's doing the time. And I just, if I had encouraged my client to take this plea, he would have gotten a much better deal than he eventually did. Um, prosecutors, that we can go on for um, Many, many more minutes, but I don't want to do that. I I, I want to um, just, if I may have the time, um, summarize here something that is, frankly, very close to my heart. Um, I commend the Innocence Project, um, talking about the horrible wrong that is done to an innocent individual. It's it's just horrible and we can't really sugarcoat that it's wrong also in a lesser sense to society because it leaves the true offender at large so you do a double injustice and i don't want you to get the idea you you might say judge wilkinson you are a real stick in the mud that's what my wife and my friends tell me so <laughs> you wouldn't be alone uh, Join the crowd," uh, said. "Is there anything you're you're for? Yeah, a lot. Uh, in terms of reform of the criminal justice system, I think suggestions of body cameras on police are a good idea. Uh, I think it's absolutely crucial that police and prosecutors who are conducting a a lineup or a photo ID with they should not know who the suspect is." Because if they know who the suspect is, they're going to nudge and push the witness and direct them toward that individual. So we need to have blind photo IDs, which are much less, in my view, subject to manipulation. Um, The suggestion that we have um, open files, uh, we should move in the direction of prosecutorial open files. And I think the idea of video uh, taping interrogations is something that should be discussed as well. I don't think these are constitutional values, but they're the kind of values that ought to be brought up in, um, uh, in the states and discussed among individual trial judges. And uh, they're the kind of things that may lead to some useful reforms once, they see, once we see how they work out in, um, in different jurisdictions. So I don't want to constitutionalize them that introduces too much rigidity in the system, but I do want there to be dialogue about these things and there to be experimentation. And there's one last little thing, and this won't take, you know, take me long. Um, I think it is sad today that the criminal justice system has become a scapegoat for all the different ways in which we have failed our disadvantaged communities. We have failed to provide opportunity, educational opportunities, opportunities in jobs and occupations and school, opportunities for a decent chance in life. And so so much of what we find to criticize in our criminal justice system is simply a reflection of this larger difficulty in not providing our disadvantaged communities what they're due. Without the criminal justice system, though, it would make a bad situation even worse. Uh, we, would have not have, we would not have safe streets without a police presence. Drug lords and gang leaders would rule the inner city more than we already do. People would prey on the most val- vulnerable, and addiction would destroy more lives. Uh, the... Uh, after 9-11, people flocked to the criminal justice as a far better alternative than military tribunals. And when I talk to people who have been come back here from abroad, they tend to respect the American criminal justice system more than any other with which they have been acquainted. So I urge you uh, not to move from one extreme to the other, but let's recover this sense of balance as we view our criminal justice system, what I'm asking you to do is please give American institutions, and this one in particular, a fair trial. Thank you. Okay, we're
0: going to have a very brief uh, second round, five minutes each. Judge Kaczynski.
1: Well, I am glad to see that um, Judge Wilkinson's come around to my view. Uh, um, I have never suggested that we ought to tear down the criminal justice system and, um, and um, start from scratch. I think there are many areas in which incremental change can happen. Um, Judge Wilkinson talked about memory, and he says, well, there's nothing to do about the fact that uh, trials take time and that memories fade. But there are things we can do to preserve memories, and there are things we can do to keep memories from being misshapen. And Judge Wilkinson has offered uh, at least one solution. You know, uh, if you have a lineup, the officers conducting the lineup ought not to know who the who the suspect is. This is very simple because we know that if they know who they are, they will communicate that or can communicate that to the uh, to the to the defense uh, to, I mean, to the to the to the victim. Um, Stuff like that, that kind of change, that kind of incremental change can happen in all um, these areas, uh, having to do with um, uh, memory, having to do with perception, having to do with investigation, so on. Uh, Judge uh, Wilkinson says we should move towards open file discovery. I'm with him. I think this is wonderful, and I think he and I uh, agree on this point. That is an incremental change that really needs serious consideration, and I'm so glad to hear that he's on board. I'm, I mean it not at all ironically. I'm 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 very pleased. And I thank Hato for sort of bringing us together to. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm, so, so so we're not as far apart as it would seem. Um, Judge Wilkinson has spent some time talking about reforms that I have not proposed and do not endorse. I do not think we should do away with preemptory challenges. And I certainly don't think we should do away with plea bargaining. Everything he said on those subjects, I agree with. So um, those, and there are critics who make those suggestions, but I'm not with them. I will come out uh, and disappoint uh, Judge Wonkerson on absolute immunity. Yes, absolute immunity needs to go. Now, the, the, just to make sure you all understand what absolute immunity means. Absolute immunity means that if you are a prosecutor and you manufacture evidence and you put it on trial, you went home, you create a document, You then go to court and present it as a document that has been, and you do it on your Photoshop machine or whatever it is, uh, to make it look like uh, it's in defendant's handwriting, introduce it to the trial. You can, and defendant gets convicted because of that, you cannot be sued, you are absolutely immune. You suborn perjury, you are absolutely immune. You do anything to threaten witnesses, you are absolutely immune. And the reason the Supreme Court said is don't worry about it. Don't worry about it because you give absolute immunity to prosecutors, they will get prosecuted because those things are crimes. Well, for all those defendants and all of those instances we have seen where prosecutors have misbehaved and have done far worse than, than I have suggested, where they manufactured, where they intimidated, where they have provided hidden evidence. Uh, where they have concealed evidence of a knowingly kept it out, uh, that resulted in 10, 15, 20, 30 years of people, sometimes people going uh, to, to, to the execution. The total time that the prosecutors spent behind bars has been six days. Two prosecutors, Ken Anderson, got nine days, nine days for the 25 years that Michael Morton spent in prison. He served four or five of them. Five of them. And there's one more prosecutor whose name I now don't remember who served one day. It doesn't happen. Prosecutors don't prosecute other prosecutors. It doesn't happen. So that's... I just don't think it's a possibility. Qualified immunity? I don't know. I'm glad. I'm sort of surprised to hear that in the Fourth Circuit it's so easy to survive a motion for summary judgment in a qualified immunity case. We are firm... um, We are firm... um, A summary judgment uh, for defendants in in, uh, qualified immunity cases all the time. And what's more, and as Judge Wilkinson knows, if you file, if you seek qualified immunity and you seek summary judgment on it and don't get it, you get an immediate appeal nobody else in the federal system gets an immediate appeal. But if you are uh, somebody subject to qualified immunity, like a policeman or or another officer, you get an immediate appeal. So it's not like you have to wait to the end of trial to see whether or not that is... uh... So I think qualified immunity is perfectly fine, and I think that uh, if uh, prosecutors thought that being actually held personally liable, even if it's paid for by their employer, but if they get personal liability, then maybe they wouldn't worry so much about coming up with prosecutions where the only purpose is to put it on their resume so they can go shop for a fat job afterwards. Thank you.
0: Judge Wilkinson, five minutes.
4: We could go back on an absolute and prosecutorial, level, absolute and qualified immunity for a very long time. Um, one of the things that that troubles me about my good friend's presentation um, is that we, we do, when we talk about forensic evidence and when we talk about prosecutorial prosecutions that have never been brought, um, we always talk about things that misfired, but what you never, ever hear about are the prosecutions where a prosecutor, in the exercise of good judgment, simply says, no, the evidence is too ambiguous here to go forward with the case, or they're mitigating circumstances that should not we should not go forward with the case. Um, in other words, there are many, many, many cases where prosecutors, decline to prosecute. And not one of them makes for the kind of um, vivid anecdote that the cases of ill-founded prosecutions do. But when you read these statistical studies, please understand that cases where there's decline to taking action um, or where there's inaction, They don't make the statistical studies, and they don't make the highlight reels, and they don't make the PowerPoint presentations. But they are real, and they save many, many individuals who should not be in the toils of the criminal justice system from being swept up in it. And it's the same thing with forensic evidence. There are many times when that evidence is not introduced because it's too iffy. And yet, when a lab doesn't introduce those things, are you ever going to hear about it? No, you're never going to hear about it. So what I'm saying is that those instances where evidence is not put forward because it's tainted, or situations where prosecutions don't go forward, those are the great silences. But they often work in the defendant's favor. If I have just a minute or two, I'd like to talk briefly about sentencing, because it's a huge um, issue and it's on everybody's mind. Um, yeah, we've overdone mandatory minimums, but there were reasons Congress put in mandatory minimums, and that was Congress was very distrustful of judges granting such things as probation um, for very serious crimes, that there were some judges who seemed very um, uh, intuitively incapable of imposing punishments. They do serve their purpose in some instances, mandatory minimums, um, because it's the fear of that mandatory minimum that encourages someone to turn state's evidence. Now, do we always need a mandatory minimum to encourage somebody to turn state's evidence and, and, and cooperate with the prosecution? Um, no, we do not. But the prosecution has to have some sort of stick in this situation. Why? Because the small fry who are going to testify against larger drug lords and drug leaders, that takes guts. That takes courage. And there's likely to be retaliation when those higher up the chain of a drug organization hear that you're cooperating with the state. And so without without a stiff sentence to balance the equation, you're not going to get cooperation and move up the chain on these gangs and these drug organizations. Why do we go after the small fry sometimes? Why not just head to the top? Well, because the leaders of an organization are far more skilled sometimes at covering, covering their tracks and minimizing their risk and pushing the smaller fry who get paid the least and bear the greatest risk. And you just, there's no practical alternative. Than to begin at the bottom. Sometimes, when you're trying to crack a large organization, a very violent and ruthless one, and and move up. I want to say something about whether sentences are too severe and talk a little bit about the sentencing guidelines. Um, we moved from a wholly discretionary system, which was what we had, and I want to just tell you one little story. Um, back before in before 1987, when when the sentencing guidelines weren't in effect, there were two wonderful judges in Charleston, West Virginia. And they were both friends of mine, and they were both honest and, and, and hardworking judges who wanted to do the right thing. They were at the opposite ends of the hall of the courthouse. And one judge, is in, one judge invariably gave probation and a nice sweet avuncular lecture uh, to the person that appeared before him. And another judge brought down the hammer. And it was perfectly clear that the lawyer's one uh, one task, paramount goal, was to get the client before the right judge. That was what uh, needed to be done. And that is why um, the uh, sentencing guidelines came into effect. We now have, we went too far and curbed district court discretion too much. But what we now have with the the decision of Gall v. United States is a system which calls for guided discretion, which eliminates the wild inconsistencies of the pre-guidelines era, um, and at the same time gives district judges the ability to take the human individual before them into account. So this is a... uh, an example of where the criminal justice system, after swinging from one extreme to another, the pendulum, God bless the pendulum, that finally arrives in the right place and strikes the right balance. And this is what happened here. And maybe Alex, maybe Alex and I can, can close on a truly harmonious note. Maybe you agree with me here, Alex. Oh, uh, You're not nodding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, it depends on what the here is. Uh, <laughs> we still have mandatory minimums. Mm-hmm. If we do away with those, maybe we pretty. Close. No, I'm not for doing away with all. Of them. <laughs> I, I guess the answer is no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. We're going to open it up and take your questions now. I do have three requests. Uh, When I call on you, please wait for our microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question. Please identify yourself and any affiliation that you might have. And keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Yes, the gentleman in the back.
3: Uh, thank you. My name is Stephen Keat. I'm speaking for myself. Uh, Judge Kosinski, I found your presentation uh, very convincing. Uh, well, thank you. S- uh, thank you. Two slides in particular at the very beginning uh, I found impressive. The one on prison population and the number of people in the world, the great number here in the United States as a percentage of the world. But I was wondering... Two countries in particular, Iran and China. Only China was on the slide. They have a tendency to go and to execute people uh, fairly quickly. Is that, you know, factored into your uh, statistics at all? I'm not trying to discount your statistics, but I'm just wondering.
1: I, I don't know. I uh, those are accepted statistics. I didn't consider. Uh, I do know they have executions in China. I don't think that they're in the millions uh, or in the thousands or hundreds of thousands that they would affect the figures significantly. But I don't know.
0: Yes, down here. Thank you. Wonderful
2: presentation, Clark Neely from the Institute for Justice. Sydney documents in her book that the the Stevens prosecution was one of the great debacles in the history of DOJ. I think there was agreement about that. Uh, Systematic deliberate misconduct on the part of the U.S. attorneys involved. Uh, I believe, if I recall the book correctly, the worst punishment that was handed out to any of those attorneys was a transfer to another office. Uh, Ken Anderson, as a prosecutor, cost a man 25 years in jail by committing criminal contempt of court and withholding evidence that should have been produced. He got less than a week uh, in jail, should Americans have confidence in a system um, where prosecutors regulate themselves and show such lenience um, in the face of such uh, indefensible conduct?
0: you want to start
1: i I am not trying to create contempt for our criminal justice system. I do agree with much of what judge wilkinson says it's a it 's a good system it's a system that is made up largely of people who, who uh, try to do a good job and try to do it fairly and, and uh, scrupulously. Uh, what I've pointed to is the fact that there are enough glitches, enough problems with the system that we as a society ought to be worried. So I don't, when you say lack confidence, have confidence, I think we should have confidence in our system, but I don't think it's inconsistent to have confidence and have doubt. Trust, but verify, and I think when we see that our system in which we do have confidence in which we have a long track record, has problems with it, uh, has issues arrays that 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 that, that challenge our confidence, uh, I think what we do is not develop contempt for the system, but what we want to do is find solutions, make changes, be flexible enough to to, to, to take the criticisms into account and make the system better.
4: Yeah, I, I should um, warn you, I have a, a hearing impairment, and um, the harder your questions get, the worse my hearing becomes. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I was only making the point about you know, hoping I could bring alex along but i seem not, I seem not to have succeeded um
1: keep working at
4: this <laughs> that um we shouldn't abrogate absolute immunity for prosecutors be- uh, because what we're talking about here is a private civil action for damages uh with probably very few restraints on it, and um those will very quickly uh multiply and um, tie down resources to a great extent. Now, Alex makes the point in rebuttal that, well, but the prosecutors aren't gonna prosecute prosecutors. But that seems to me to fall short uh, because it doesn't answer the question of why a private civil action for damages against a prosecutor is the remedy we want to choose. There are many other options on the table, and one of those um, options would lie within the um, Department of Justice, and you can have some sort of uh, integrity unit within the Department of Justice. Is that infallible? No, but um, there are sanctions short of of prosecution. That's one idea. thing is that the prosec- uh, prosecutors uh, who brought the Ted Stevens case, uh, which is just one of several examples of where they way overreached, um, their sanctions such as they should lose their jobs. Um, that that uh, is quite a blot on your resume if you are kicked out of your job by. Um, superiors or or others within the Department of Justice. All I'm saying is there are a range of remedies that Congress considers every time it, it enacts a law, and they don't always have to uh, be a private civil action for damages. That action will be abused, and it will be used every time there's an acquittal, whether the prosecutor proceeded in good faith or whether he didn't.
1: Okay. Well, what you see is actual promotions of prosecutors, uh, not, not sanctions. Uh, remember, what we're talking about here is constitutional violations. We're not talking about making an error. We're talking about some prosecutor doing something that is known to be contrary constitution, like failing, uh, concealing evidence. Now, the poor schmuck cop on the beat who didn't go to l- law school, uh, may not even have graduated college, is expected to know the Constitution and God knows if, if that cop does something that is established in the law uh, to be a constitutional violation, uh, he can be sued. Now why should the prosecutor, who went to law school presumably and uh, p- presumably knows the, uh, knows the criminal law much better, why should that prosecutor get better protection than, than, than the cop on the beat? I don't get it. It's only elitism. It is because prosecutors are like judges, and prosecutors sometimes we're judges, and they're just like us, and we're out to protect ourselves. There's judicial immunity, too. If a judge does that kind of thing, uh, something that's truly, patently unconstitutional, qualify the immunity. Why? Because judges write their opinions. What do you expect?
0: <laughs> OK, yes, sir, In the blue shirt.
5: Uh, 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 Al Moses, uh, no affiliation. Uh, my question is about uh, the institution of plea bargaining. Both of you said that you don't think it should be done away with, but now I don't know the statistics of how many of the people in prison are there as the result of a plea bargain, but I, I know that it's a pretty large percentage. And there is certainly a lot of room for abuse in the process of plea bargaining, and let having the prosecutors pressure a, a defendant into giving up his, his right to a trial. So since you don't want to do away with it, I was wondering, do either, can either of you make suggestions about how you think the system could be reformed to make it less prone to abuse?
1: Jay, you take it, since you're
4: um, well. Uh, I'll start with the um, supposition that everybody should be able to waive um, a constitutional right. and We allow people to waive their right to a jury trial, and that's just a fundamental right of choice within our system. So I think the person should have a right to strike a, a deal that's advantageous um, to him or her. Now, there's some things that can be done, and one of those is to try to provide public defender's offices with adequate resources so that they don't have too many clients to pay individual attention to each one. Prosecutors complain of the same thing. They say, we simply can't give people the punishment they deserve because we don't have the prosecutorial resources, and we have to bargain way down. Um, uh, beyond what we think is, is, is necessary for um, public, uh, public protection. Now the question is, uh, does plea bargaining uh, induce someone, is there some sort of unfair pressure on somebody to plea bargain, and here I can only say that yes, there is pressure but more often than not, that pressure is exerted by the fact that the state's evidence against an individual is very, very strong, and we see the um, uh, the same thing in contract negotiations that one side may be pressured in a civil contract by the fact that another side may be holding um, all the cards, and we see this, you know, in a criminal trial too. Maybe somebody doesn't want to take the stand, but the state puts on um, a, a, a strong case, and then the criminal defendant says, wow, I better get on the stand um, and uh, uh, respond to what the state has put on. Now, is that, is that pressure to take the stand? Is, yes. Is it a violation of the Fifth Amendment? I don't think so. Because I think it's a right to, that, that someone has a right to take the stand or not. And the fact that the that, that the, the fact that the state has assembled a strong case may put pressure on you to plea bargain, but that's not. That's what's present in a great, great many cases, and it's not an illegitimate pressure. What um what I do think your your question points toward is if we can possibly provide more resources so that a public defender has uh, in, in not so many cases to deal with, that might help.
1: Okay. I, I, I have I want to, to move I, on to I, a different I, I, But I think this is important. Okay. There are two things that need to be done for pre-bargaining. A lot of times prosecutors insist on bargaining before they provide any exculpatory evidence. I would first of all require that no bargaining be allowed until the prosecutor comes up with all the evidence, all the Brady materials, so the defendant will not be bamboozled, will not give away rights, uh, when in fact uh, the prosecutor has exculpatory evidence. And the second thing is oftentimes, defendants get charged with something that may not be a crime, and uh, they have no way of testing it because district judges, at least in the federal system, will not dismiss indictments for insufficiency. Now, my law clerk, uh, James Burnham, has written a piece in the green bag, which I recommend to everybody here, suggesting that in federal court and in the state court as well, that district judges take close look at indictments for sufficiency and that be appealable so that a defendant can know whether, in fact, he's facing a crime. So I think I would make those two. I would make those two changes, and at that point, the defendant can know, in fact, what he is being charged with is, in fact, a crime, and second of all, that he has all the exculpatory evidence.
0: Okay, I think I see Paul Larkin in the back. Paul, Larkin from Heritage Foundation. wait for the microphone, Paul.
2: Paul Larkin from the Heritage Foundation. I want to ask Judge Wilkinson a question. Because I think that a lot of the arguments you're making go to blue-collar crimes where there is clearly a question uh, that the defendant may or may not be the one who committed it, but there's no question a crime occurred. In the white-collar area, there probably is no doubt that uh, everybody agrees what happened, but it may not be a crime. The, The rules that you're talking about may work very differently in the two systems. Because if you're talking about the reasonable doubt standard helping the defendant, it doesn't help him if the question is whether what everybody admits happened is a crime. No judge decides whether this is a crime by beyond a reasonable doubt. They decide whether this is or is not a crime based on a more likely than not standard, what seems more persuasive to them. And when you have crimes defined by regulations issued by administrative agencies, you hardly have uh, judgments that reflect deep-seated popular norms and communal judgments of desert and retribution. That's what you wrote in your article. Uh, Any time you're talking about the white-collar area, I think you have to look at this problem very differently. And I, I don't think your arguments always work in that area.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a, a very interesting point. Um, I really do. Uh, they are—they're um, different. Um, they're different species, to be sure. And um, the one of the main one of the main differences, of course, is that the uh, um, what you refer to as blue collar crime. The vast majority of defendants are um, are indigent, and they're going to be represented um, by appointed counsel or by public defender organizations. When you get to a white collar criminal situation, you you have a different scheme of um r- of representation which is that you're dealing in the main uh, very often with retained counsel um w- whom the de- the criminal defendant has um has chosen now the problem with the uh, uh blue collar crime was that a, a public defender may have too many cases um the problem with the white collar crime area uh it, 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 just because the the lawyers have been retained and had chosen, that doesn't necessarily eliminate the resource disparity, and the difficulty. Often, it seems to me, in the white collar area, is that the um, the agency, for example, and this is this relates to civil infractions as well as to criminal prosecutions, but the agency because it's it's. It's working on the, um, the 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 public trust or the public fisc may have the uh, resources to simply outlast you, um, and you're paying you're paying for your your counsel, in that case, is, and and the the state can can drag the investigation out. It can drag it on. It can drag it on. It can drag it on and bleed you, and that's it. Seems to me um, a a problem both civilly and criminally that you have public agencies with large amounts of appropriations and resources and private defendants with, with limited ones. So I think it's, um, it's really a different paradigm and I think it's something that, uh, that, that r- r- really needs to be addressed because there is a good amount of agency abuse i've seen so many cases where they've kept people on the string for years and years and years and um i'm glad you raised that question sir because it's, it, it, it does indicate that not all of these situations are the same
0: yes sir no no down here first row
3: Um Stuart gerson uh, I'd like you to comment on the on the question of over criminalization uh, both at the blue collar level where oftentimes plea bargaining is uh, fueled by multiple charges uh, very lengthy uh, indictments that oftentimes have mandatory minimums or would subject a uh, a, a convicted defendant to uh, uh, substantial sentences under the under the guidelines, and on the white collar side, Paul mentioned the myriad of, of regulations that uh, have uh, criminal overtones. But uh, more and more in the environmental crimes area in the healthcare area, we're seeing uh, Congress pass laws or attempts made by uh, uh, prosecutors to charge crimes where mens rea is either not required uh, or is uh, virtually absent. Uh, can either or both of you comment on that.
0: You wrote an article on this subject of over criminal. I did. <laughs> I edited it.
1: <laughs> I mean the 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 fact uh, the article's called you too may be a federal criminal and yes, I'm talking to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the 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 um, I mean the reality is that uh uh, it's very easy to to uh, criminalize and to write very broad statutes, and even easier to then delegate responsibility for implementing to to, to federal agencies, uh, so that a lot of stuff that uh, happens uh, that people uh, take for granted uh, uh, winds up being winds up being criminal or arguably criminal. And you add to that the fact that uh, very often. Um, the, uh, if for whatever reason they want to go after somebody they can stretch the the, the, uh, the terms of the law or they can um, refuse, you know, as they did in, in, uh, uh, in various cases in, in, um, in uh, Arthur Anders and so on, uh, argue about whether or not there is a sienta requirement or intent requirement uh, well, with, without uh, if, you, if you stretch these things far enough, there's really nobody you can't you can't get, and nobody you can't put behind the eight ball and and and, um, and then force to the grim choice of uh, t- uh, going to trial and risking um, huge uh, penalties or or or, or uh, taking a, a settlement. And lest you be w- too worried that, oh, the rich uh, do much better than the poor because the poor get public defenders and the rich get their own lawyers, they're taking care of that problem now because now the federal government is going in and seizing, pretrial trial uh, <laughs> the money you were going to use to hire a lawyer. Uh, so so um, they, they not only want you uh, um, uh, fighting... Uh, uh, um, a crime where where uh, the risks are huge to you, uh, where the terms are ill defined, where they refuse to um, uh, an instruction to they, they take the position that you don't get an instruction asociante, but they want to do it without a lawyer, or you want to they want to do it with a lawyer who's willing to do it for nothing. Um, this is the kind of uh, abuse, I think, uh, I mean, and this is the kind of stuff that worries me. I, I'm a little surprised that my uh, friend, uh, Jay Wilkinson, is, is, is so complacent about it. Me, it gives me the willies. You
0: want
4: to comment on um, that? It's a, uh, the word over is one of those, it's, it's throw, thrown around, it's, it's a, very br- a very broad kind of phenomenon. Um, I think part of, some part of it, has been brought about by the fact that we have different species of crime, such as cybercrime. And we have the internet, um, which has made possible all kinds of different crimes um, and, and made more serious different crimes that probably didn't exist or didn't exist as a federal question um, beforehand. So I think when you're looking at at uh, the proliferation in 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 criminal laws, you have to, uh, you, you can't divorce it from some of the underlying changes in society that are um, taking place. Um, criminal organizations, for example, are becoming more sophisticated and many of their operations um, are cross state lines um, and they do and so that's an invitation for the uh, a federal government to criminalize those things if they if they cross state lines, so part of it is a a response to electronic crimes, part of it is a response to interstate crimes uh, that's that 's part of it. Another part of it is that legislators do like to take credit um, for enacting um, crimes uh, and that seems to me to be um, a lively political question. They feel they would answer that we're, this is horrible behavior. We are responding to the um, wishes of our constituents. People don't feel safe. Well, that may or may not be true. And the point is, I think that what you raise is a, is a good question. But I think it's more of a question um, for a, a legislative hearing um, and the political system to work itself out. Uh, as to whether prosecutors stack crimes and stack charges, yes, to some extent they do. But can can we can we really fault a prosecutor from enforcing um, laws that are on the books? And a lot of times they bring multiple charges because they don't know which ones um, the jury is going, the uh, a judge is going to dismiss and they don't know which ones the jury's going to acquit on, and so it's a matter of, 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 of hedging bets. All I'm trying to suggest to you is um, you, you're on to something, but I think there's a reason for the phenomenon, um, and I think um, um, that the, the fault may lie more uh, or, or with the uh, impulse to criminalize for political credit at the, at the political level, but I'm not sure that you can go after prosecutors because I'm not sure they can predict the fate of all these different of the different crimes they charge.
0: I am afraid we have run out of time, but would you please thank both of our speakers for an interesting. <laughs>